Welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? with your host, Jeff Stein. This program really does uncover the sometime myth that all are innocent until proven guilty. The truth is that many innocent people are found guilty of a crime that they did not commit. We discuss the judicial system, its flaws, and where it could be made better. Now, here is Jeff Stein. Good morning and welcome to episode 14 of Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? I'm excited about today's show and our guest, Larry Forletta. We usually talk a lot about wrongful arrests and convictions in the United States and the problems with the integrity of those involved in the wrongful convictions and things that can be fixed and how. Today, we are going to talk about a case that is one of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania's most haunting unsolved murders that occurred on or around January 25th, 2017. Are the smiley face killers responsible for the death of Duquesne University student Dakota James? Keep in mind, this is a live show. Feel free to call or email with questions or topics that you would like discussed or hear discussed on our show today or in the future. Good morning, Larry. Great to have you on the show, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Jeff, and actually thank you for uh, inviting us. My my pleasure. I'm glad to have you on Many shows, we talk about lackadaisical police work or prosecutorial misconduct. I have always stated that I'm pro-law enforcement and wanted to chat today with a former federal law enforcement officer who has since uh, went into the private sector after his retirement. Larry, I'm going to let you tell our listeners a little more about you and your background before we get into the details of what you believed happened to Dakota James. Yes, thank you, Jeff. Um, My uh, career actually started... uh, some time ago with the Maryland State Police. Um, I was there for almost eight years uh, before I left and, and uh, became a special agent with the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. And uh, so what happens is uh, the way this, you know, the way things happen sometimes in life, um, it, it's kind of strange because uh, I was contacted by a former Maryland State trooper Regarding this case, uh, eventually when I met the uh, Dakota James family, only to find out that they were from Frederick, Maryland. And actually, Frederick, Maryland is where I once lived and worked with the Maryland State Police. So it was almost uh, a strange calling that uh, we would meet uh, and that I would hopefully would have been in a position to help them as much as I could to uh, find their son. Interesting. Interesting. Well, that's, like you said, it's funny how things work. And I'm sure they, I know they found the right person, you know, with your skill sets and with your background and obviously where you, you work previously. Can you, let's, let's get into the investigation first. Um, can you tell us about, you know, what happened with Dakota James <clears throat> that night and what, what the smiley face killers are and, and what your theories are? Well, uh, Dakota, James went missing uh, on uh, January 25th, 2017, uh, around 11.30 at night. Um, his, uh, his family had reached out to him and, and some friends, and they were unable to contact him. And uh, from there, it became suspicious uh, because uh, Dakota had a very uh, strong and loving relationship with his family. And usually, you know, on a Daily basis, nightly basis, he would stay in touch with his parents. And so when they did not hear from him, uh, they became 
very suspicious of uh, something uh, did not seem right to them. And so, uh, you know, what happened from there was they started a campaign uh, in Pittsburgh. Although they weren't real familiar with the city, uh, I do know that Dakota and his dad had, had been to some Pittsburgh Pirates games. So the family at that point uh, made an effort uh, by gathering some volunteers, some very nice people here in Pittsburgh, and helped them start searching uh, for Dakota uh, through the postings and some social media. Uh, so, uh, and then eliciting, you know, the uh, Pittsburgh Police Department's missing persons bureau to uh, help them find uh, Dakota. Uh, Within uh, a week or several weeks later, uh, I received a phone call, and then uh, uh, I became involved in the case with the family. And so my responsibility was, uh, was kind of, one was to coordinate uh, searches, um, to act as the liaison uh, with the law enforcement agencies, and three, uh, liaison with the uh, local news media, uh, which uh, became a highly uh, media-entrenched uh, operation because the news media uh, had really uh, took uh, this case and, and ran with it. And so there was a lot of attention uh, being made on, on uh, this particular case. Interesting. So, uh, Larry, I have, I have a question. When, sure. As the liaison with the law enforcement, how was that perceived or, or received with the local law enforcement, and how did they interact with you? Well, we did, um, uh, we did uh, find the right uh, officers involved in the case. Uh, they were receptive. Um, in fact, uh, the, the second person in charge of this particular unit, uh, I had known him for a long time, and we'd worked together on a DEA task force. So once he and I were able to connect with each other, uh, that uh, sort of streamlined the communications, uh, improved them, uh, because there were some uh, issues with the family that they were concerned uh, about the communications with the, uh, uh, the Pittsburgh Police Department. And so uh, that became a very challenging uh, case for uh, me in a sense of, you know, I've had good relationships with them, and it was to try to do a, deal with a very delicate situation. And, uh, you know, there were some criticisms of them um, through uh, media and, and social media, uh, but uh, at the end of the day, um, the detective who was responsible for the case, uh, I felt, uh, did an outstanding job. But there was always issues that came up. That came up. Uh, we dealt with them. We handled them as professionally as we could. Uh, again, uh, the family wanted answers, and sometimes uh, they weren't able to get some of them. However, uh, we worked through things. We had meetings with the authorities, and we did hash out some things, and uh, you know, we moved forward. Okay. So that evening, he was he was out with his friends, and they were drinking, and and he didn't come home, and so the family was concerned. 
after. Yes. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. After you got involved, so a few weeks went by, and and he was he was missing. He was nowhere to be found. You got involved. At, at what point um, was the body found, and where, and kind of pick it well, up from the, there? Well, the the body wasn't actually found until a couple months later, uh, back in in March uh, March sixth of twenty seventeen uh, in the Ohio River. Um, what I had did is I helped organize the searches, um, starting, uh, with the very first one that we did, uh, on the Allegheny River. Uh, we had the Allegheny, or excuse me, we had the Pittsburgh Police Department's, uh, River Patrol Unit that, that I thought felt did a very good job. Uh, we had, uh, private citizens, volunteers, and we had some, um, volunteer groups who were experts in conducting grid searches, which is, uh, I felt that that's what needed to be done. Uh, so we did a, we did our first press release, uh, which, uh, involved a group of volunteers in Pittsburgh. Um, and, uh, because the way I saw it and based on my training and conducting searches for missing persons, et cetera, is that we did need to establish some type of grid search so that, you know, People weren't just running around in the different locations. So it was very well coordinated. Uh, and then uh, from there, uh, my focus uh, began looking at the water. Uh, the reason why I started looking at the water is because there had been some previous incidents where some young men had uh, disappeared or fell into the water and ended up, uh, one that comes to mind, ended up in, in West Virginia. So I was uh, focusing on uh, following the river going south, and uh, so the reason of the name for the three rivers was the Allegheny, Monongahela, which uh, go directly to the Ohio River, and the Ohio River is, you know, is, is a very large, massive water body. So we began to focus uh, there. I was able to elicit uh, support through my professional relationship and personal contacts. Um, so we started uh, with some very, very well-trained professionals in river rescue, uh, river operations. Uh, we even included uh, a drone company uh, that I brought in through my connections, and we searched. And uh, some of the searches take would, you know, took a significant amount of time. I, I would have to say that uh, we probably covered about 100 miles of, of water wow. uh, with the various sor- searches that we did. So, you know, we started in an area called uh, uh, Robinson Township. Uh, from there, we went into uh, another jurisdiction, Beaver County. And then Beaver County uh, was where we we uh, utilized the drones. We actually used the the, the drones uh, in Robinson Township with uh, the Allegheny County Sheriff's Office, uh, who were extremely helpful in this matter. Uh, they they also had a uh, a canine bloodhound. Uh, so, with some of the services that we were able to gather in, in cooperation, it became a very big operation uh, looking for uh, Dakota. Um, so. Once we continued to focus on the water, uh, 
um, eventually, uh, that's where he was found. Was was he found in, in the water as a re- result of the search, or was it something else that where his body surfaced? Well, his body did surface. Um, as you know, that uh, as the water starts warming up, the gases from the body begin to release, which causes the body to rise. Um, so um, that certainly was helpful. And in, in fact, the area that we had just searched prior to moving into the next county. Uh, is where he was actually found. So two weeks after we had searched that particular location, uh, he had surfaced. In fact, uh, a woman was walking her pet uh, down by one of the docks, and she actually saw uh, the body and contacted the authorities. And then uh, I was contacted by the authorities, uh, advised me that it looked like they had recovered his body, and they had notified the family and then subsequently, I went and met the family, and you know we went from there. And so, at, at that time, that's when an autopsy was was conducted, and the medical examiner got involved. And what was their findings? And then, uh, well, I, go ahead. Yeah, we. Uh, I, I accompanied the family to the medical examiner's office. First of all, they they wanted to uh, do a positive identification. And it was done through some photos, uh, and there was a tattoo that positively identified him. Uh, we met with the, the medical examiner's investigators. They were very professional. Uh, they explained uh, you know, what took place. Now, at that particular time, uh, there wasn't uh, an actual uh, cause of death determined yet because they were still in the process of uh, you know, taking the body and, and then doing the autopsy. And then subsequently, you know, we uh, we learned uh, that the um, autopsy through the medical examiner's office indicated that uh, and ruled his death by accidental drowning. But you know, I, I don't think there was much there that they could have. How could they have said anything else? Because we, you know, he was found in the water. Right. Was there any thought or or any foul play that could have been involved that night with any of his peers and colleagues or students that classmates that he was with? No, um, I inter- I actually interviewed uh, several, well, quite a few of his former co-workers, uh, including the co-worker that was with him that night uh, when he was heading back home uh, after they had left one of the bars. Um she had taken an Uber ride, and he decided to walk home. Um, so, um, no, there was no indication from that report um, that other than it was an accidental drowning. And I, and I had not seen that report, uh, but it was based on the information that I obtained. Um, so, uh, in, the, in the process of all that, I had also recommended... Uh, to the family about uh, Dr. Weck and maybe getting a different opinion uh, to evaluate what, um, you know, what may have been seen. And so in in the course of all this, I had been in touch uh, and learned through a contact of mine uh, that a uh, a former NYPD homicide detective, Kevin Gannon, uh, you know, had been involved in some mysterious deaths 
uh, that he had started a profile, and I actually spoke to him, and he and I talked about this, and I'd looked and searched the areas um, where we, we sort of followed his, his trail to see if there was any of the smiley face insignias in, in those particular locations. Uh, there was a lot of graffiti, especially under the bridges. Uh, there was some graffiti, I think, uh, through one of the alleyways where he was last seen. Uh, nothing that I detected, but uh, again, uh, these gentlemen were the experts in, in handling uh, the smiley face killer uh, investigations. So let's just back up one minute because you mentioned Dr. Wecht and just to inform the listeners a little bit about Dr. Wecht, um, he has runs and, and I don't know how long he's been doing this. I know it's been a long time. I know I've, I've spoken there and I've attended some seminars there, but they run the uh, Wecht Institute of Forensic Science and Law. And they usually have forensic um, forensic Fridays and a lot of different uh, right. continuing education units, but that's run through or in partnership with Duquesne University. Right. Well, and, well, Dr. Weck is really a legend in Pittsburgh. Uh, all, all over. As the, <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah. Well, literally. Well, well, it starts in Pittsburgh and then it goes yes. throughout the country. Yeah. Um, I think we're all familiar with his uh, his background. Uh, with the JFK assassination, uh, which probably put him at the top of the charts. Um, and so um, he's very well respected, uh, as we said, not only in Pittsburgh, but elsewhere throughout the country. Um, and so uh, I felt that it was, you know, uh, the way I viewed it is was to get a, another opinion um, from Dr. Weck. Um, so eventually what happened was the, the family uh, did bring in uh, Detective Gannon, and uh, they had, uh, you know, their meetings with uh, Dr. Weck, the district attorney's offices, and so on. At that point, I wasn't involved in the case, uh, so they uh, basically uh, used uh, Detective uh, Gannon and his team to further enhance the investigation. Can you tell us a little bit, you had mentioned earlier to me that Dr. Wecht had a different perspective um, from what the, um, what the original medical examiner determined. Can you touch base on that at all? Sure. Well, what happened was um, the family was provided the autopsy report along with the uh, police department's report. Um, which in, in a lot of instances is kind of surprising, but um, that, that information was uh, then turned over to uh, Kevin Gannon, who, uh, as I said, is a very experienced homicide investigator and leading you know, a group uh, when he was a lieutenant with NYPD. So he looked at the, uh, some of the photos, and et cetera, and what he thought was some ligature marks around uh, the neck of, uh, of Dakota. And then subsequently, he met with Dr. Weck, um, who uh, viewed the um, autopsy report and uh, basically uh, said that he believed that it was a uh, ligature marks um, because the original uh, medical examiner's ruling was accidental. Um, and I think Dr. Weck uh, uh, 
opinion was that it should have been classified either as a homicide or undetermined and uh, and focused it more, more to undetermined because uh, there was these suspicious marks around his neck. Is there any way to get that changed? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but if it's listed as an accidental, it's not going to be on any law enforcement's cold case files. Um, obviously, the family or self have the right to continue to try to search for answers through the private sector, but really, unless something else is is a determining factor, law enforcement's going to be out of the equation because it's ruled accidental. Is, is that correct? Yes, you are absolutely 100% correct, which was why it was important uh, to convince the medical examiner uh, to make it undetermined uh, versus uh, the accidental. Uh, to date, uh, that has not changed. Uh, they have decided to leave that in place. Um, I believe the Allegheny County District Attorney's Office uh, utilized some of their investigators. And uh, at, at this point, to, to my knowledge, nothing has changed. So uh, the case is basically closed from the uh, authorities' perspective as an accidental drowning. And I think that the only way that they would change this is if some evidence came up and, uh, you know, enlightened the medical examiner's office to, to change their minds. His, his path home that evening when he left and went on foot to go from when, when he, he left his his um, his friend who took the Uber home, would his path of, of foot travel been from there to his home, to his apartment? Was Is that near the water, or would he have had to, to go astray from that route to end up in the water? No, it was actually, uh, he would have to cross several bridges, but... Um, he uh, walked to an area called Cat's Plaza, uh, and he walked through that alleyway through Cat's Plaza. The, there was some uh, video of that. Um, so that showed his last known location, um, and, and that was part of uh, us being involved in the docuseries, uh, which we actually traced his path to his house. Um, at that time of the year, uh, of course, it was cold out, and uh, there was only a couple of ways for him to get, go home. Uh, one would have been if he walked over the 7th Street Bridge, or he went over to the 6th Street Bridge, which is the Clemente Bridge. Uh, the 7th Street Bridge at the time was under construction, uh, so there was no uh, pedestrian able to travel over that bridge. So the only way really for him to get home at that location where he was generally last seen was for him to uh, go to the 6th Street Bridge or the Clemente Bridge, walk over that bridge, and head home. So he lived basically on the north side of Pittsburgh, and that would have been the general, general direction for him to go home. Okay, gotcha. We're going to take a real quick commercial break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the smiley face killers. So we'll be right back.
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. ELPS Private Detective Agency is here to provide you with security and investigative services. Our specialties include criminal defense, surveillance, security consulting, loss prevention investigations, and more. ELPS Private Detective Agency is a dynamic team of professionals with over 30 years of experience. No case is too small, too large, or too difficult. We're licensed, bonded, and insured. Visit ELPSPDA.com on the web or call us at 877-SEE-THAT. ELPS Private Detective Agency. Fighting theft, fraud, and crime, one case at a time. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator, featuring stories and articles on current topics and issues written by professional investigators and leading experts in the profession. Real equipment reviews from top surveillance investigators with years of experience. PI Magazine offers investigative tips and practical advice for the newly licensed to the seasoned veteran investigator. Catch up on recommended sources, vendors, and professional services. Don't miss a single issue of PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. There are many people who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild and Your Dog with expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to is there really truth and justice for all to reach jeff stein or his guest today please call in to 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 or you can send an email to jstein at elpspda.com now back to is there really truth and justice for all welcome back and we were Right in the middle of talking about the uh, Dakota James path of travel that evening. And I guess maybe we can just add a little bit to that, that Larry, if, if he was to end up, somehow he ended up in the water. We, we know that. That's a fact. But for him to go down or for him to really get in the water on his own, there are some different things that he would have had to have done that don't add up or don't make sense. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, um, so uh, when um, he had walked through the alleyway uh, through Katz Plaza, that would have taken him to uh, Fort Duquesne Boulevard. So in order for him to cross, uh, to get over to the 6th Street Bridge, when he came out of the alleyway, he would have had to go left. As I mentioned earlier, the 7th Street Bridge was, was closed to pedestrian traffic. So if he walks down uh, that particular street, he would literally have to cross the street and walk over to the uh, 6th Street Bridge 
And um, so, you know, the question became, well, how did he get into the water? Um, if, for example, uh, you know, if you're drinking at night, um, you know, if you had to urinate, you know, would you even begin to walk down 30-some steps uh, to urinate, which is right there by the water, the Allegheny River, and that, if you look straight across, that's where the, uh, where the baseball stadium's at. Or would you just cross the bridge and then walk, you know, to your residence? So um, that's where the mystery is. You know, I, I would think, in, in my view, that uh, <clears throat> I can't see him walking down 30-some steps if he had to urinate. It just doesn't make sense. Um, so that's where the mystery is. Um, and how did he get into the water? What, what was his blood alcohol levels? Um, I'm not sure the exact amount. I know it was, was uh, I, I think that it was uh, relatively, uh, I don't know, medium to high. I'm not sure um, because I didn't get a chance to review any of the reports, but from what I understand. Um, but uh, there was also, I believe, the investigators mentioned through the toxicology report, uh, there may have been um, a finding, uh, I want to say GHB, uh, some within his system. Um, I'm not exactly sure on if it was, uh, but there, there was an indication in the, in the toxicology report. So, um, for those not familiar with GHB, it's really a knockout drug um, that has been used in in date rape uh, cases uh, quite extensively, and it's uh, it's a uh, horse tranquilizer. Um, but uh, there was some in the, some indication of that. Again, I'm not 100 percent sure because I didn't get to see uh, the toxicology report. Um, but there was some some indication of that. So, in any event, um, uh, there was no evidence that uh, you know that he could have fallen in the water, or he got pushed into the water, or he got dropped off in the water. Uh, that's really where that's really the the fifty million dollar question, as I had previously uh, mentioned in the series, that uh, we couldn't figure it out. And I don't think uh, to this day that anybody will really know what happened. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about the smiley face killers and and what the the intel is uh, throughout throughout the region where there's some speculation that there could be a, a group of smiley face killers out there? Well. The way, uh, as I understand it from uh, Kevin Gann, uh, he basically, uh, as an NYPD detective, uh, started looking at uh, uh, a theory, a murder theory of uh, young men being found in bodies of water uh, in the Midwest, uh, and they believe they were not victims of accidental drowning, but victims of one or more being targeted by a group uh, in Dakota sort of fit within that profile, you know, white college-age men. Uh, so, and uh, they found this graffiti 
of a smiley face near uh, the scenes where uh, some of the bodies were found. Um, and that's how it became uh, this theory uh, called the smiley face killers. Um, I know that there was always some questions um, about that theory. Uh, you know, some groups or people within law enforcement, you know, didn't, uh, didn't buy into it, and probably some of them don't. Uh, but that doesn't mean it, it doesn't exist or hasn't happened. Um, so uh, that's um, kind of where this theory began. And so within uh, Kevin Gannon's group, uh, he had other detectives and some other experts uh, that began to look at this collectively throughout the country, uh, especially in the Midwest, uh, where you begin to see a pattern um, of deaths of these, uh, you know, college-age white males uh, being suspiciously, um, you know, suspiciously victims of these uh, of a smiley face group or or individuals uh, that uh, you know have taken place. There there were six uh, cases I think that was on the uh, Oxygen Network that depicted uh, you know these. Uh, other victims uh, and uh, the issues that uh, uh, Detective uh, Gannon and his team found and discussed and, uh, you know, put in place the, the smiley, smiley face killers. So from that standpoint, uh, that's how they really became involved in, in Dakota James because it was um, probably the most uh, current type of case that ended up missing. The, the other ones that I, they had looked at were more historical in nature. And uh, like I said, I had talked to Kevin on the phone, but I never met him in person until the day of uh, the filming with the docuseries. And I, I believe that the reason why that was behind that through the docuseries and the Oxygen Network group was to keep it as... Uh, Impartial uh, and you know impartial as to uh, what type of questions anybody was going to be asked. So I really didn't know. So when I first met him, I met him as we were filming, and the questions were asked of me. Uh, there was no uh, no script, you know, no pre interviews. Uh, I, I was uh, you know a little uh, amazed at it. But, um, you know, I handled uh, as best I could the questions. Uh, they asked direct questions, and I believe I answered them as uh, the best I could at the time. Okay. You know, I, I know there's there's been some, there's a lot of information on the smiley face killers on, uh, on the Internet. And I do believe in things like that, um, that it could be a very solid theory. There is... Um, Several years ago, I know we dealt with what I believed was there was something going around called the knockout game. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I did, where um, actually uh, people were walking up to people and punching them in the face. Actually, we had uh, some incidents of that took place in Pittsburgh. Yes. Uh, there, was yeah. a, there was a gentleman uh, who walked through an alleyway, and his group of juveniles just... Uh, 
walked up to him, punched him, and knocked him out. Yeah, that, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, several years ago, we had something uh, similar to that in um, in our area, and I believed it was there. There was there was a few cases, and I believed it was the knockout game. Uh, it fit the profile, and I know law enforcement and the politicians didn't want to cause any type of hype or uh, concern, so they really, they didn't think that's what it was. And I only bring that up because there's there's a lot of communities, both in, in the law enforcement community as well as the, the political arena. And when I say political, I'm not talking about Republicans or Democrats. What I mean is just the, the, the communities, they don't want to cause a, a public um, concern. And so they sometimes downplay things because of that. And, and maybe that's part of the case, you know, with the smiley face killers that people right. don't want to believe that there's something going on or the communities don't want to promote that because you're going to create, you know, an, maybe an unnecessary, unnecessary cause of, of alarm or concern among the, the people who live and reside in that community, um, as well as, you know, if um, – in the knockout game, it happened all over the country when I was doing some some research on it. I mean, it was widespread across the United States and people died. And, and the knockout game, like you said, is they just run up to somebody and they hit them. And, and the goal is to, to hit them so hard that it knocks them out. But people have died because as they're they're yep. falling down, they hit the back of their head on the curb and um, they're laying there and, you know, nobody nobody's around to help them and, and they die. So it can be very serious, and, and maybe that's um, along the lines with this smiley face killers. You don't want to cause that, that public perception and have it become, you know, something that happens more frequently. But it yeah. does definitely have some interest, and uh, I think there's some merit to, you know, what I saw when I was reading about the smiley face killers. definitely sounds like... Something that people can do, and it's it doesn't have to be a, a serial. It's it's not necessarily a serial killer. It's just right. people go on this mission, you know, in various places and various times to to do what they do. Well, I don't think they've ever uh, said that it was uh, an an organized group. It could be right. independent groups. Exactly. That, that That's exactly what I'm manner. trying to, to. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for but, thank you for clarifying yeah. that. Absolutely. Well, the the the, uh, the knockout groups though was really confirmed, as opposed to the smiley face killers, because in Pittsburgh, this gang of juveniles were actually captured on video, and they were prosecuted for it. Um, in in this case, uh, there has been nothing that substantial uh, to say uh, that the smiley face killers exist, but. As you look back in history at a lot of serial killers, uh, you're right, it is downplayed. And law enforcement does downplay it to a certain extent, uh, not to alarm the communities uh, about it. Um, and, you know, that's kind of the way, you, you know, you look at things. If you looked at the most recent serial killer, I don't recall the person's name, but he's now admitted to about 90 killings and 50 right. of them have been confirmed. So... Does this exist? Absolutely. Could uh, this incident involving Dakota James happened that way? Yes, it could have. 
And again, we just need we needed to develop some evidence, although, you know, there's a conflict between, you know, two medical professionals uh, that disagree on the findings of the autopsy. Well, hopefully and, and optimistically, maybe through the this podcast, maybe somebody will come forward and and share some information. You know, whether it's it's uh, regarding Dakota James or any other um, suspicion of the smiley face killers, because it, it's something that's been really debunked in the past um, by by different groups, and I, I don't think the FBI has supported that theory as well. But it definitely has some merit and sounds like um, Kevin Gannon really did his homework and has dedicated a lot of time to trying to, you know, piece together the similarities of all those cases that, that he identified around the country. Well, if no, no question. If, if anyone does have any information, any new information that can help with any of the smiley face killings um, or believed to be killings or especially Dakota James, is there somebody in particular that they should contact and, and do you know their information? Is that you? Is it somebody in, well, in Allegheny? Well, the reason why I, I came on to your podcast was for that reason. I, I wanted to try to keep this thing um, with any new fresh information from anybody out there that may have some personal knowledge about what happened to Dakota. Um, you can call my office at uh, 877-874-9394. And, you know, we'll take the information, we'll listen to it, and uh, we'll pass uh, the information on to the appropriate people, including Kevin and the authorities if necessary. So, yes, um, that's, uh, again, my primary reason of being on today was to keep this thing um Alive, I guess, for a lack of a better word, but um, uh, that it that uh, because over time, as you know, people's memories begin to fade, uh, the information gets stale, and uh, and then we're still looking at a um, a closed case, an accidental drowning, and uh, so um, I think I owe it to the family uh, to keep uh, this thing alive and. and, and Again, uh, for lack of a better term, but to keep it going so that nobody forgets what happened to uh, Dakota James and, and to the other victims in, in this case. Absolutely, and, and um, I'm glad you did because these things are really serious, obviously. And, and he's somebody who, um, if I'm correct, he, he worked full-time. He was attending college full-time during his master's degree. And he was active in swimming, running, biking, um, music, dancing. So for him to just fall into into the river and drown definitely sounds suspicious. And I hope for any of our listeners, if you have any information, please come forward and let us know. I, I am uh, personally, I'm very serious and passionate about cold cases. And in fact, I'm a member of the VDOC Society. And um, I'll just, just want to take a minute to let the listeners know a little bit about what the VDOC Society is in case they're not familiar with it, but it was a society founded in 1990 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to further the resolution of long unsolved homicides. It's made up of volunteer forensic experts and investigators who serve as confidential consultants to insist to assist law enforcement in solving difficult cold cases. 
our members include profilers, criminologists, forensic scientists, medical examiners, active and retired law enforcement agencies or agents, prosecutors, polygraph examiners, and other skilled in solving cold cases. Uh, The VDOC Society provides pro bono expert assistance to law enforcement community in solving their cold case homicides. They do not um, conduct any independent investigations. They act as a catalyst to assist law enforcement agencies uh, only at their invitation. Uh, In fact, the United States Department of Justice's National Institute of Justice has named the VDOC Society as a source in its latest publication entitled National Best Practices for Implementing and Sustaining a Cold Case Investigation Unit. so if, if anyone has any cold cases, um, they really need to go through their law enforcement agency uh, to um, contact the VDOC Society. They don't take personal cases. Um, it all goes through law enforcement. But that's how um, passionate I am about cold cases and, and glad that Larry was able to be uh, on the show and, and talk about this because it's they're out there, folks. There's There's a lot of cold cases and um, it's something that we all try to work together to um, to put some closure to these cases for not only the victim, but the families. And, you know, like the, the title of our show is, Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? We want, we want truth and justice for Dakota James. So, uh, you know, what really happened? And if, if, if he was, in fact, killed, if he was murdered and it's a homicide, that means there's somebody out there that did it. Um, and, and, you know, the justice needs to be served. So we only have a few more minutes till the show is uh, comes to a close for the for today's episode. But, Larry, many people don't understand how we as private investigators are able to assist with missing persons and cold cases. With you having a long, distinguished career in law enforcement and now the private sector, can you educate our listeners on why and how private investigators are helpful with these types of cases in, in uh, a minute or two? <laughs> sure. Well, um, you know, I, I look at private investigators as the independent ear of investigations. Um, and uh, so I, I think uh, when you begin to, to look at that, I think private investigators uh, do serve the community well. And they do serve working with, you know, families. In, in my case, with the Dakota James family, you know, I was with them for 40 days, uh, day in and day out. And I know and I dealt with, you know, their feelings, you know, their love for their child and how dedicated they were to him. Uh, Sometimes on on the law enforcement side, you don't get to see that. Uh, You don't get to see the the integral uh, issues dealt internally with the family. Uh, As I said, the the, the James family were a loving family, very close to their son. Um, And so I sort of lived that through them because of, you know, being close and having relationships with my own children. And so, you know, every day that I went there, uh, it was a challenge. Uh, just, you know, dealing with the issues that came up uh, through, you know, whatever they were, through the law enforcement, social media, you know, being called at uh, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning by psychics uh, that, uh, that I had to deal with. Um, so, it, again, it, it, it's, as I always said, that being up close and personal that is something that private investigators are able to do uh, because law enforcement, one, don't have the time, the resources uh, to commit uh, to that uh, type of operation. 
And so, and you know, and law enforcement officers and you know, police departments have a lot of cases that that go on and on and on, and you know, and it continues, and they have to look for uh, ways to, you know, whether they close the case, whether they move forward, or whether there's any different, you know, information. And so sometimes private investigators can bring that additional resource uh, to the law enforcement community and to the private citizens. So we really uh, are an advocate for uh, the private citizens. That's the way I look at my job. So whether it's, you know, I'm working on a criminal defense case or a missing persons case uh, or a private matter, I I look at myself as an advocate uh, for that family. That that's a, a really great um, way to, to close our our show for this this week. I mean, I, I appreciate your input. I just want to remind our listeners that if you do have any information, please call Larry and let them know. Uh, we really want to put a put a an end and and close this case for the family and put some closure and and peace and happiness to them so they can move forward. Thank you, Larry, so much for taking the time to to share that story with us. Uh, We appreciate all of our listeners. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen as we continue to increase our listener base. We appreciate your positive reviews. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? We can be heard Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please join host Jeff Stein for another edition of the program next week. 